This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Modeling versus simulation. Subhas Chandra Bose. Suffering heroes. And the Flat Earth. Our next sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. The clatter of dice, the crunch of Doritos wrappers, the rattle of miniatures being shoved back and forth across the table that may or may not be gridded tell us we have entered once more the friendly, if somewhat stultified, confines of the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut today, we're asking the question, what exactly are we doing on the table with those diced miniatures? We know we're doing the Doritos, at least, thank God, this not being the digestion hut. So, moving rapidly through that into the big question, Robin... What's going on on the big, I guess, what do we call it a meta level or a macro level when we talk about this stuff? I think it's macro because meta is, of course, the concern of uh, storytelling. And storytelling is uh, one end of one of the many continuums that things exist upon in the world of role-playing games. And the other end we traditionally think of as simulation. And I want to throw a sort of adjusted version of that term at you and see if you find it as uh, useful as I do, and then see where that discussion leads. So traditionally, we think of simulation as one of the many things that people come to the role-playing game table in order to experience. The only thing about that is that quite often, we are not really simulating things in a real world, or if we are, we're not simulating them all that well. 
So, for example, as we've mentioned many times before on the show, the sort of combat that people want to play out at the role-playing table, even if they've got the gridded miniatures in a super crunchy rule system and they've taken into account all the differences between different sorts of armor and different sorts of weapons and how they interact. In reality, fights aren't exciting that way. Mm. They're briefly terrifying and somebody dies and they're over. So a, a realistic skirmish is, you know, both sides create a kill zone and everybody who wanders into the kill zone dies. Or a realistic fight between two people, the superior fighter waits for the inferior fighter to make a mistake and lays them flat. And as again, as we've mentioned before, a lot of the sort of ritualized combat or sports style combat are all designed in order to make the fight more exciting and longer and less real. But I think there's a real appeal to the idea, nonetheless, that we have all these different elements that we're keeping track of and seeing how they interact and seeing how they interact together. And that's something that goes way beyond just running combats, but also something that I think people want to see in imagined worlds, in fantasy worlds. They want to see an imagined economy that ticks along without anybody interfering with it. And then the players have to interact with that in, if not a realistic way, a way where it's sort of moving along together and they, it's an object that they can poke at and, and it pokes back. And the same with, you know, the number of people who occupy the temples and this, you know, we've seen people do it with maps and demographics. But I would submit that because it's not realistic, that what this impulse really is, is an impulse to model things, that we are abstracting all of these elements in order to have fun watching them play with each other without us. Uh, Ken, is this a crazy talk? Well, I mean, I'm not exactly sure which side of the question, uh, let's say in, in practical terms, something like a really hardcore, straight-out GURPS combat is supposed to fall, because obviously GURPS is intended to be uh, reality-checked. People go out with actual swords and actual armor and whack each other with them and say, that felt like DR2, and everyone agrees, and then they go off and have a long soak, I assume. Uh, and And so is that... Is that sort of attempt to grind down into the physics of the real world, is that something that you're calling simulation or something that you're calling modeling? Which side are we on here? I think that's still modeling. That's still I think modeling. everything we're right. doing is actually modeling, even though we're calling it simulation. And the reason I would argue that is that the real world is so ferociously complicated that we can't possibly model all of it. And instead, we pick and choose the cool things that we want to model. So in that case, a bunch of dudes go out into a field and whack each other, and so they're measuring the whackitude of their various weapons, and then they make that part of the rule set, and a very important part that that rule set pays a lot of attention to. But there are so many things going on that you can't actually emphasize all of them. Maybe you could, if you spend a couple of decades creating a computer model to do that, but anything that we currently have as a technology in tabletop role-playing where it requires handling on the part of the players and the GM can't possibly go into all of those factors because it's just too dizzyingly complex. So instead, we choose to highlight particular factors in different rule sets. So for example, in classic RuneQuest, it's hit locations and having different sets of armor for different hit locations. That rule set decides that that's the really important thing that you want to model in a fight and so pays a lot of attention to it. But of course, that's only one of 100 things that you could be tracking 
uh, during a combat, let alone anything else. But it gives us the feel of realism, of naturalism, of a system that exists outside of the characters and outside of the narrative control of the participants. And I would argue that that feeling is what people are actually going for, even when they tell themselves that they're simulating things and that when they are telling themselves that you're simulating things, they're actually creating a simpler model. And so what they're doing is modeling. So your argument is that simulation is the beautiful goal, the dream that can never be reached, the communist utopia, and modeling is the closest we can get to it in the real world. The, you know, regardless of how many GURPS tactical shooting and, and fatigue rules you use and how much uh, you pile up the, 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 the gunfire in the Millennium's End or in Aces and Eights, it's always still going to be an abstraction, a necessary abstraction, in order to just be able to do it at the table at all. And so simulation is impossible, is your argument, basically, with our yes. current set of tools. And so you're arguing really just for replacing one term with the other in order to bring the artificiality of what we're doing out into sort of the open? Yes. Let's be honest with ourselves that we can still say that the um, – because you can still say that modeling stuff is fun. Yeah, right? And, right. And creating a whole bunch of elements that interact with each other that aren't necessarily trying to – tell a story, except incidentally, well, that's actually kind of fun and cool. And then the argument shifts away from, is this simulation realistic enough to what is it do we, that we want to model and what's fun to model? And so I think that that, first of all, brings in the point that simulation is an emotional impulse. It's a thing that people have identified as being fun and interesting that they want to pursue. So let's identify it as that. And I think uh, games like GURPS really play into, on a deep emotional level, the desire for ordery and mastery over an essentially random universe. So they hold out the possibility that you can, you know, you can't figure out all the factors at play in our real completely random universe, but you can invent a imaginary world and then model stuff in it and feel that you're sort of moving closer toward a, a control and understanding. And I think that's a really a powerful emotional impulse and one that uh, can be a lot of fun to explore, but it's not actually realistic simulation because for reasons we've just outlined, that's something that can't actually happen. I, I would begin by saying that simulation has still got that, that note of artificiality. If someone comes out and says, well, that was that was a good simulation of love. No one is going to be you know flattered by that necessarily, or that was well simulated combat. No one's going to feel like that was a a real veteran experience. So simulation is still has the the connotation of artificiality. It's not duplication, for example. It's not the identical thing. I think when you're talking about modeling as the tactic or the approach, and simulation as the emotional goal, then you're 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 on stronger ground in terms of maybe adding something to the to the vocabulary because i think simulation first of all is too well fixed in you know what uh, nascent critical commentary there is in role playing games to go away ever but if we focus on that as a emotional goal in the same way that drama is an emotional goal and the tactics would be hamlet's hit pointing or some other verb that we can say we have the uh, you know we are playing in order to simulate and we are using our models to do that. I think that that's that could that could be productive. That's a that's a place that the discussion and conversation can come out of. I, I really like. I think you've actually improved my thought there because that then divides the play experience into the two separate levels, and I think makes the point clearer 
and allows us to understand what it is that we're doing. And so then the, the benefits of thinking it as, you know, modeling is the practical application of the emotional impulse to simulate, then we can start when we're analyzing a set of rules that we're either designing or that as a GM, we're deciding which of this, you know, since simulationist games tend to kind of uh, tend toward the massive, you know, the big old tome, mm. and they very often present all sorts of rules, only a subset of which any GM actually uses, and each GM decides separately which thing to use. And so when you move away from the question of, is this realistic, to is this a fun thing to model, or is this a thing I care about modeling, you might come up with a different answer, for example, when you're deciding whether you want to use the strike rank rules or right. how much you care about encumbrance, for example, right? How, uh, how fun is it to have the characters worrying a lot about their carrying capacity? If you're only concerned about the fact that at a certain point, the amount of stuff they carry breaks suspension of disbelief, you can come up with a simpler encumbrance system that only comes into play when that issue arises and discard that as a thing that you care about modeling. Uh, or if your campaign is mostly about the social repercussions of the growth of a religious movement, you may want to spend a lot of effort and time and thought on your model of how congregations build and then uh, fission off and when schisms occur and when they don't. And with that, you can set up a whole range of elements that are beyond your direct control as a GM because you, like the blind watchmaker, has set your religious modeling module in play and now you're just reacting to it the way that the players are. That can then become the focus of your attention. And again, in that situation, you don't care about the encumbrance rules or, in fact, about the economics modeling uh, part of a game, except where it impinges on your growth of a religion model. And so you can sort of focus in on what it is that you want to see interact and have more control over the extent to which the model impinges on player actions and spurs them to act or react. Yeah, and obviously you can sort of you know continue that thought you know for whatever sort of game it is you're playing. I think the question then has to come, uh, what happens because simulation is such a common, you know, goal and obviously it predates, uh, role playing games by, you know, several decades, you know, back to Kriegspiel in, you know, uh, war games and then back to things like the Unknown World School of Fantasy where John W. Campbell with his, uh, stupid engineer head asks, um, you know, <laughs> not, not to tip the scales on that yeah, at all. Asks, you know, well, no, I love the Unknown World's model of fantasy. I, I, I ate it with both hands when I was a science fiction and fantasy fan. Um, but asks, you know, what is the real world effect of this magic? What happens if you have a centaur? What, what does that do? And those kinds of questions obviously predate role playing and informed it at the very earliest era because obviously Gygax had a good uh, chunk of that thought in him. Uh, when he was writing, uh, you know, those early articles uh, for for Dragon, the ecology of the this and the that. So I think that when you are running into simulations, the trouble with a modeling approach to it, or with understanding as a modeling approach, is that once you start asking questions of fun and beauty, which are the questions you ask of models, 
how do you join people's allegiance in terms of common fun and common beauty? Because obviously, simulation, everyone agrees, yes, we're making it just like the real world, only with centaurs and magic, and uh, it's flat, and also there are psionics, or whatever. But how do you join people who say, no, no, the fun thing is the economics, versus the people who say the fun thing is the encumbrance rules, versus the people who say the fun things is bullet windage? At what point uh, do you do you get to sort of is the GM the guy who makes the final determination? Do you have to sort of have that as part of the social contract in a in a strongly simulationist game space? What's what's your ideal on that? I, I think it's a question of examining unexamined assumptions, which is what I'm usually up to when I'm yet again trying to change or alter the vocabulary of role playing, and so it becomes the same process that you have for any situation where you're deciding what it is that you're all going to play together. So often it is the GM who says, uh, you know, since I'm taking on the burden of the work and often supplying the play space and I'm doing more than everybody else and I'm bringing you all together to go on this mission, the mission is that we're going to simulate the economics of piracy and not care about a bunch of other stuff, but we're really going to care a lot about the economics of piracy. And that is a statement just the same as saying, well, we're going to play GURPS, or, you know, we're going to uh, have a hero quest campaign in Elizabethan England. And at that point, you know, hopefully in any group of people, there is a desire to meet each other halfway, and the GM has enough knowledge of what their players are interested in to, you know, not pitch them a simulation of the economics of piracy if they know everybody really hates pirates and money or thinking about money. So basically, the GM has a responsibility to throw the ball to the players, as in any situation where you're setting up a game and say, here's what I want to do. Hope you think it's cool. If you don't, tell me why and we'll maybe do something else. And likewise, the players, I think, have a responsibility to take the ball and say, okay, but can we do this too? Or, yeah, that's awesome. How do I play a ninja in this situation? And that's something that is an ideal, which weirdly rarely happens. And so often I think players are too uh, deferential to whatever the GM wants to do. And instead of saying, well, that's not really what I'm interested in, can we adjust a little? They just drop out. So, which I think is another segment. Yeah, I think the, um, I, I will point out, however, that really good simulationist rule sets like GURPS are basically optimized for exactly that kind of give and take because the rules are so modular. And so you can say, we're going to use the rules for social engineering to model the religion. We're going to use these uh, economics rules uh, to model the economics. We're going to use the ninja martial arts for ninja. And you should be able to play a GURPS game in which everyone gets to model the things they want to model. And uh, assuming that it's not, you know, a 10-player game, the GM still doesn't have that much more work to keep track of. Right. And, and all you have to do there is step aside from the emotional promise that people project onto GURPS. It isn't, you know, it isn't there in GURPS because, as you just said, GURPS is modular. It's set up so you can do this, mm -hmm. that it right. allows you to simulate the entire universe. It allows you to simulate everything. Well, uh, modeling everything is just the same as the core activity that tells you you can do everything. Well, there's no work of art or game that does everything well. You should focus on a particular thing that you want to do this time. And if you really miss the economics module this time, well, run an economics game next time. We're all going to keep meeting and playing games together. And I think it's more fun to really explore one area in depth when you're modeling things than to 
introduced so many elements that none of them really come into focus and that all of them have a super high handling cost piled on top of each other. Well, that's a summary and a move into a next segment. So obviously, we really have to be done with the gaming hut now. This episode is also brought to you by The Dreamlands, crowdfunding now on Indiegogo. This is the first movie adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Dream Cycle ever to be made. Produced by the team that brought us DeFarba, a highly praised adaptation of The Color Out of Space. You can help this independent movie get made by pledging on Indiegogo. Or you can actually get your share of future profits by crowd investing. Take a look at your options as well as the three spectacular teaser trailers at www.the-dreamlands.com Dare to dream. The shifty eyes of the man drinking tea across from you in the shadowy cafe, the poorly mimeographed, tightly spaced screed that you are reading, the weird resemblance of the proprietor to Lee Harvey Oswald, all combine to tell us that we've entered the deep shadows of the conspiracy corner. And Ken, this week you would like to talk about the multiple conspiracy theories surrounding the death, or was it, of a key figure in the Indian independence movement, a figure who moved away from Gandhi and decided that the enemies of his enemies were his friends and maybe led him to some strange bedfellows. So, Ken, can you uh, start us off with the 101 on Subhas Chandra Bose? Well, Subhas Chandra Bose is usually depicted, and not without some justice, as a wannabe fascist leader of India who is basically sort of the Vidkun Quisling, if you will, of India. He teams up with the Japanese, leading a group called the Indian National Army to an invasion of India. And this is a portrait that, on the one hand, is accurate. He did see Ataturk, uh, not necessarily Hitler, as the model for a developing country to be sort of brought into the first rank of nations in the 20th century. And again, when you look at the years he was growing up, you could look at Japan under the um, uh, the sort of the oligarchical uh, rule of the big industrialists and uh, the, the slow movement towards sort of dictatorial Bushido under the, under the Navy. You can look at a lot of other countries. Uh, you know, when he was growing up, Mussolini and uh, Stalin had not yet demonstrated their various incompetence to run anything. So he is got sort of an Ataturkist leaning, and he teamed up with the Japanese because they were going to fight the British. And fighting the British is what he was put on this earth to do. And given that my own country teamed up with an unsavory autocracy to fight the British, it seems a little bit snotty of me to start picking nits. America occasionally cozies up to autocracy. Yes, well, we cozied up to Louis the Sixteenth's France, which is a, a, a fairly grotesque country in a lot of ways, though not necessarily on the same level as Imperial Japan. So that was basically Bose's decision, was that in order to uh, free India from the British, there had to be less talking and more shooting. And so he uh, got, that was what basically caused him to be expelled from the Congress party after he basically co-founded it uh, in Bengal. I, I can see how less uh, talking, more shooting would uh, lead to a schism with Gandhi. Mm -hmm. it, it did indeed. Um, and so therefore, he winds up on the other side. He goes off to Germany, shakes hands with Hitler, 
starts talking up the you know importance of Aryan people not being run by a bunch of uh, by a bunch of British guys, and Hitler's you know happy to you know be photographed with people like Rob Ford, <laughs> much like Rob Ford, Hitler and Rob Ford, a, a study in parallels. <laughs> Take that, Hitler. Uh, anyway. <laughs> So, Bose spends the war basically recruiting his Indian National Army for the Japanese, mostly out of Indian prisoners of war in Singapore and other uh, British garrisons that got captured by the Japanese. Again, these are Indians who had been trained up in the, in the great Pukasahib tradition of the Raj, who then saw their white officers ingloriously surrender at the first opportunity. And so they were sort of ripe for the picking. Bose turned out to be hugely popular as a propagandist in India, and there was a very great worry in India that if the uh, invasion that he finally got around to mounting in 1944 had either been sooner or had just succeeded a little more, there would have been a real problem on the hands of, of the British Empire there. He was a dab hand with a slogan. He was a dab hand with a slogan. And then in 1945, as the Japanese were getting ready to fall apart and the war was clearly lost, he gets in a plane in Singapore. He flies to uh, Saigon and then he flies to Taiwan. And from Taiwan, he's going to take off and the theory is go to Manchuria so that he can meet up with the Russians. And the plane in Taiwan sort of is overloaded, possibly with Bose and his aide and a big box of gold that Bose would carry around because you never know when you might need a big box of gold in these troubled times. And the drawback of gold being heavy is never come back to burn anyone. Never, ever, ever. And so the plane sort of topples over and smashes and blows up and catches on fire. And eventually the body is taken out and uh, cremated uh, on site. And that is the end, or so they would have you believe, of Subhas Chandra Bose is on an airfield in Taiwan. Right. So, so far, this has sounded a lot like a history hut, but this is the conspiracy is. corner. So where uh, does the conspiracy come in? The conspiracy comes in very, very early. It turns out that even during the report, there are also reports of Gandhi saying, you know, I won't believe that Bose is dead until I see his body. There are people who are talking about, did Bose actually get on the plane? It doesn't make sense that he would have brought this one guy with him if his real goal was to talk to the Russians. He brought this one guy, the, his aide that was with him at the, at the crash, because he was the kind of loyal Alfred Pennyworth who would back up your claim of being dead and not uh, put up a big screaming deal, that he was attempting to sort of cover his tracks so that he wouldn't be turned over to the British as a war criminal and hung. Uh, what he did not know was that the British lost their nerve during the Agra trials and let all of the Indian National Army guys off with very light sentences. And explain what those trials were. Th those were the war crimes trials that the British tried to have for the Indian National Army after the war. And so they um, uh, they, they accused them all of, of war crimes, and, and the actually it was the guy that, that was with Bose at the end stands up and he, uh, and he sort of you know lays out you know, the, the goal of, of freeing India and that this was anything was, was right in that cause and that they didn't do any of the prisoner torturing or any of the other stuff that the Japanese did and the British are only uh, trying them for treason and if they're going to do that, let them be hung from the highest yardarm in India and the British are like, well, we're not going to hang anyone from a yardarm necessarily because they didn't want to create martyrs and, and have uh, India explode in the last stages of trying to give it away. And there was a yardarm shortage after the war. There was a yardarm shortage because of the war. So there's also an American uh, journalist, and I always love it when American journalists get into things, who uh, looks at the pictures of the, of the airfield where Bose allegedly crashed and says, I've been on that airfield. That's not that airfield in Taiwan. That's a different airfield. And one can say, on the one hand, that maybe he'd been on the airfield before it had been bombed flat by the U.S. Air Force for four years running. 
Or you can say, maybe this guy knows an airfield when he sees it. So there's a lot of possibilities that bows did not die, and they're certainly very uh, loud at the time. The theory being that he did make it to Manchuria, he did meet with the Russians. There are notes from, I, I forget if it's Molotov or Molotov's private secretary, that are, you know, sort of memos to say, what should we do with bows? What's what's our solution to the bows problem? And for people who are just thinking of a flaming bottle, uh, quickly remind us who Molotov was. Molotov was the, at that time, Soviet foreign minister and is not quite ready to be purged at this point. And, and so there's there's questions about bows being asked at some level in the Kremlin. We don't know because no one has gone to those archives and, and dug around. The brief Yeltsin spring uh, is over, of course, so good luck finding anything. But the Indian government never actually managed to ask any questions of those Soviets to find out for sure. The conspiracy theorists argue this is because the Indian government has, up until very recently, pretty much been the personal fiefdom of the Nehru family, who are the uh, self-appointed heirs to Gandhi, and therefore don't necessarily want to have a guy who got purged from Congress by Gandhi showing up again, either in public discussion or, worse yet, in public. The argument being that the Soviets basically held Bose in a gulag and threatened to release him if India did not turn towards the Soviet Union. This is a sort of one of those grand conspiracy narratives like you get that explains India's foreign policy for the last 50 years with that. There are another couple of interesting Phillips on it. The other possibility is that he did come back to India, but because he was sort of of a mystical bent before the war, his experiences in the war had chastened him, and he became a sadhu, a traveling holy man. And there are two different sadhus that people thought were bows. One guy who the Indian Secret Service took a more than amateur interest in, and then another guy who died in 1985 and left behind him a big trunk full of the kinds of books that someone who had been educated in England and stayed some time in Russia would have owned, as well as an awful lot of stuff about bows, which is a little weird for a sadhu to have. But on the other hand, in a nation of a billion people, the sadhus are not going to be the guys in the middle of the bell curve, is, is the yes. way to play that. Statistically speaking, there's got to be one sadhu who has a collection of just about everything. And statistically speaking, the sadhus are the guys who are more likely to be doing that than you know your normal Indian babu who just goes to the office and comes back again. So there, the question stays there. There have been three separate Indian government inquiries into it. Two of them were very standard. Don't be ridiculous. There was no cover-up. He died in the plane crash. The third one was left open because it was done under a non-Congress government. But the member of parliament who was sort of driving it wound up embarrassing the whole the whole cause when he said, I have in my hand a picture of Bose who's still alive, and what he had was a picture of one of these sadhus with Bose's head very clumsily, <laughs> not even photoshopped, because this was pre-photoshopped, right. but clumsily mounted, shop at the time, I glue believe. shopped onto it. And so they look at that picture and they say, oh, that's nonsense. And so all of the other possibly indicative documentary evidence that he'd managed to put together get sort of ignored again. So the Congress party basically... Never lead with your fakest bit. Never lead with your with your glue shop picture. So the, the, it, was, it was very, very close, but it gets nailed back down. And now, of course, the new Prime Minister of India, uh, Narendra Modi, is from the BJP, not from Congress. He personally is a fan of Bose because he personally is a sort of an Ataturkish figure. Uh, I think that that's a fair estimate. Uh, he's a bit of an authoritarian lean to him. Has has something of that to him. A very much a made the trains run on time in Gujarat. Why can't we do it for all of India type attitude. 
And uh, while it is too soon to say whether that's a bad sign for India or a good sign for India, it is not too soon to say that it is a good sign for people who probably want to see this Bose story get blown up again. So I suspect we will see another Indian government inquest into uh, Bose, and we are definitely going to see one if there's any evidence of collusion, regardless of whether there's evidence of Bose. If, you know, he goes into the Foreign Ministry archives and Sure enough, there's a note from the Soviets saying, play ball, see, or else you know what will happen. Then he may just release that and count on, you know, the sort of using that as the smoke. And I suspect that we'll see that once he runs into any kind of serious opposition for his uh, domestic politics that, you know, there's going to be at some point he's going to need a big, flashy news story to get people talking about how scummy Congress is. And I think that that's what he's got in his um, uh, in his ample sleeve right now. So we've now taken care of our listeners. So when this story becomes a story in India and everyone else is baffled, our listeners will all be able to nod sagely and go, oh, yes, yes, Bose, I knew that, all about that. So how do we take that beyond knowledge of history and conspiracy into something to plug into our fantastic fiction or our role-playing gaming? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, there's lots of possibilities for that end-of-the-war era, that last 1945 hurrah when they're saving Hitler's brain and flying saucers are being built, and you can add bows to that mix. And, you and you know, you got a, a guy who's got mystic powers traveling around East Asia with his faithful manservant in a box of gold. If that's not a story, I don't know what's a story. So you can basically have, a, have him become a version of the Shadow... Who, right. uh, he didn't yeah. have to go to the Mystic East to learn his powers of mind control. He started out there, so he has a head start. Mm-hmm. And exactly. he, you can make him uh, sort of a pulpish version of the legend of himself for the day after Ragnarok or any other sort of fantastic pulpy game set in the post-war era in the real world. Yeah, he can be sort of a guy who's fighting the hated British in India. He can be part of a league of sort of uh, super-powered fascists to oppose the Shadow, who uh, does not like fascists, as we all know. And so if you want to play up that aspect of him, he can use his mystic powers and box of gold and, like, team up with uh, Scorzani and, um, you know, William Dudley Pelly and I don't know who all else. So he can be, and, the, for and, the Shadow, he can be that classic arch-villain who's the, exactly, the Shadow, the, <laughs> so to speak, of the hero. Of the, of the, yes, right. <laughs> the the Belloc to the Shadow's Indiana, yeah. if you will. Um, and so the... Uh, you, you can have him be that. You can certainly, if your game takes place in India in any, you know, era since independence, it can be a ongoing juicy conspiracy. It can be a MacGuffin to find out. There there can be sort of a mystery about it. If you've got a, a Knight's Black Agents game uh, that's playing out in India, bows can certainly have been saved at the last minute by vampires and turned into one of their uh, most effective Renfields. Or he might have been supernatural and Faking a plane crash is, is quite simple because he'd learned the secret of becoming a Vitala long ago in the forests of Bengal, and he just flew away in bat form, and no one saw that. And so there's all manner of, of possibilities of, of bows that you introduce, and the great thing about introducing a, uh, a villain with that kind of backstory is, specifically, he has a backstory. He has things that you can look up. He has old Indian National Army comrades he can call on. He can have any number of connections in Japan or the Soviet Union or wherever you need him to have those. And uh, also, I guess, in uh, terms, if you want to take a world that is an imaginary world, you can sort of then strip off the details and find a way to make a rebellion story more interesting so that your story is about the 
conflict between two sides within an independence movement. And they then have that perpetual struggle between are we trying to win by talking or are we trying to win with guns? And that's sort of a classic theme. You could, if you're really versed on your history, I guess you could set up a, a drama system uh, series pitch all about the Indian independence movement and have him be one of the player characters. Or in fiction or in gaming, you can abstract that into that classic conflict. My theory is that as the Indian middle class gets ever larger, and certainly as you see it with Bollywood and you see it with other Indian cultural exports, the reaching out to, to Western art forms and Western culture will continue apace. Uh, I think that, you know, there, there may be Indians listening to this very podcast who think, oh, that would be fun to do a drama system about the early days of the Congress party. And just like, you know, Americans might say, hey, drama system game about the founding fathers at, uh, con at meeting for the Constitution or doing the Declaration of Independence or any of that might be fun. Or uh, you guys in Canada could have a drama system in which everyone agrees slowly around a table while the Magic Beaver serve donuts. You know, that could be something that, that happens now, not just if, you know, you're a an American doing research. If you're an Indian listening to the podcast, it might be fun. I wonder if there's, there's an Indian equivalent of the John Adams miniseries. I don't know if there's media about bows. That would be interesting to uh, find that out because, you know, the books that I've read are by sort of bows partisans in that they're biographies of bows. And in this case, India's biggest cover up by Anuj Dihar, which is where I got virtually all of my bows related information. I think he's a reporter, but he's interested in bows. And so the notion of, of a fictionalized bows, either as, you know, in a, in a, in a movie or in a, a, a sort of a story form where you've got a figure who's obviously bows, but can't be called bows. That might be fun to play with as well. Well, I see by the clock on the wall that it's time to uh, move along to a, another hut. So let's fake our deaths and then resurrect ourselves in that next hut. of the IBM Selectric that inexplicably fills the air, the scent of bourbon that far more explicably <laughs> fills the air, tell us that we have entered How to Write Good, and once more in the How to Write Good, we are faced with the fundamental problems of heroism, and in this case, the problem of heroism is they seem to have a lot of problems, Robin. What, what is the problem that you are wrestling with, or rather having heroes wrestle with now? So, yeah, what I want to look at is the issue of suffering, and in Contemporary presentations of the hero, it is very uh, fashionable, some might say de rigueur, to portray your hero as suffering from such a degree of angst that he is virtually crippled, but of course rises uh, above or beyond or beside that to, to win the day at the end. But there's a lot of pain now in our conception of the hero. And as you might be able to detect from the way that I'm framing that, I think in a lot of ways that it is an unnecessary fashion, that it is a cliche, and that it is a symptom of something that I've spoken about before, which is our current tendency to mix up the dramatic and the iconic hero. So if we look at our classic iconic heroes, there is certainly 
one of them for whom suffering is very key, and that is Batman. And what we're seeing, I think, is a, a Batmanification across the board of all sorts of classic iconic heroes and also newer iconic heroes. And so this is where we get the, you know, very downbeat, uh, morose uh, Superman of Man of Steel. Or the recent Lone Ranger movie, you can see where there's two layers of two completely opposite scripts glued together by a release date deadline, both of them horrible. And the original horrible one is the angsty Lone Ranger, where Tonto is the main character, but also the tragedy of the original situation that even in the very first Lone Ranger radio play establishes who the Lone Ranger is, is really played up and emphasized. And then they take that and sort of half throw it away and layer on a level of goofballness from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, and they have these two elements uh, fighting each other. So, But I think you can probably think of other examples, Ken, of iconic heroes who are made to uh, have more suffering in them. The version of uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock is more about the suffering that he inflicts on those around him by being a sociopath, which is interesting enough, but he's a childish sociopath, which is becoming progressively less cool as they uh, create more seasons of that. Are, are there other examples you can think of where uh, uh, suffering has been brought to the forefront in an attempt to make heroes more interesting? Um, Sherlock Holmes is actually a really good example of that, and it's one of the few correct steps that the new Sherlock did with the character, is to not give him a fundamental trauma that created him and made him this way. It's just that he sort of was always this way, and that that's just, you know, how he was. And if he had a trauma, it was growing up with his jerk brother, Mycroft, not anything else. But, you know, previous to that, going back to the 7% solution, you have, well, Sherlock Holmes is a brilliant uh, genius. He obviously must be broken and tormented in some way. Let's solve that problem. And so you have that Moriarty was his teacher who abused him in school, or you have that his parents were killed by criminals, or you, whatever it is, you Batmanized and not in a good way, Sherlock Holmes, over and over and over and over and over a lot of times. And there are plenty of examples of characters who have had that sort of retroactive trauma attached to them. Or, as you point out with the Lone Ranger movie, the actual trauma in the origin, instead of becoming an awesome Clint Eastwood revenge narrative, like in Hang Em High or High Plains Drifter, becomes a psychological wound that must be healed and touched on and, and, and sobbed over by everyone endlessly, as opposed to being expiated in gunplay the way that a proper iconic, at least a proper American iconic hero does it. So I think that the, the case of, of Sherlock Holmes indicates that you can screw with an iconic hero and then you can at least make the effort to go back and fix it. Although obviously Moffat is not a dab hand at that, but he's, he, he did at least avoid childhood trauma, so we have to give him that. And the reason that I'm thinking about this in particular, it, well, first of all, let me go back a step. And my argument would be that what makes a hero is not suffering that they must overcome and redeem themselves from. It's not a therapeutic model. Or if there is a therapeutic model of the hero, the hero is healing the world, not himself, Right, The hero is a selfless figure, and what the hero needs instead of suffering is an iconic ethos, something mm -hmm. that they do and repeat over and over again to heal the world and restore order to it. And that as long as the obstacles that the hero must overcome in each individual episode are interesting enough, 
that is more than sufficient for what should be the ultimate powerful and healing statement of the hero. The hero is not healing himself. He is healing us. Right. Um, and then this brings us to the, the reason I've been thinking about this is that there was an article about the new presentation of the Tomb Raider character in the upcoming video game reboot by Lee Alexander on Gama Sutra. And the question in that really interesting piece, which we will link to on the blog, is what happens when you take female characters and subject them to this level of suffering? And in general, it becomes very challenging because our standards of what should happen to women as they face vicissitudes and conflicts in drama has not quite entirely resolved itself with the basic feminist idea that women should also get to be ass-kicking fantastic heroes. So that if we are deciding that heroes have to suffer in order to be interesting, and then instead of a male character getting the crap beaten out of him as Batman does in the Nolan movies or as Yojimbo does at the turning point in Yojimbo, and therefore the man with no name d does at the turning point in A Fistful of Dollars and you know lots of other characters too. I like to put my heroes through the ringer. I like to have them uh, bashed around and then come back from that, not because they are suffering inside, but because the, the stakes are high and they have to earn their victories. But if you have a bunch of guys beating up a woman, is that a feminist statement because you're saying that a woman can take that and overcome that? Or is that a regressive statement in which the audience is assumed to be getting off on the humbling of the female hero? Yeah, I mean, I think that with a lot of things like this, you can look at the general trope and say the general trope is overused, like the Batmanification of a hero. And, or in this case, the, the brutal abuse of a female character, either at the climax of the story or the turning point of the story, or worse yet, at the beginning of the story to explain why she's tough. You know, I, th I think, wasn't Lara Croft now, isn't Lara Croft now supposed to be a rape victim or something awful like that? I don't follow the, the story of Lara Croft. There's some hideous trauma that she's gone to the psychiatrist to resolve. So I think, I don't know whether it's rape or there's just a hint of that or it's PTSD or what, whatever it is, it, it seems, lame and disempowering. Right. And then the, uh, then the question is to what, it, I mean, how is it done in the individual? And then as a, in the individual case, you know, because I haven't seen it, maybe it's done well. The odds seem to be against it because the storyline of the Lara Croft uh, games has never been their strong suit. I mean, her iconic ethos should be, I heal the world by protecting artifacts and you don't need or any level ra raiding them. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it, in, in the same sense that we don't need Indiana Jones to have any more childhood trauma. In fact, we didn't really need him to have been neglected by his dad, but we got that. And because it was Sean Connery and Harrison Ford and uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas in a relatively lucid moment, it actually worked there. But just like the neglectful dad motif is grotesquely overdone, I think that all of these motifs can be grotesquely overdone and be anti-feminist if they're done in sort of a lazy way or if it's done in sort of a, what do I want to say, a lascivious style. So when you see Yojimbo getting beaten up, no one is identifying with the guys beating up Yojimbo. They're identifying with Yojimbo saying, oh, boy, you just wait, guys. Yojimbo's going to come back and Yojimbo the hell out of you people. But when you see the girl get uh, raped in uh, Last House on the Left or in I Spit on Your Grave, there is a very strong 
tendency by the audience to identify with the rapists, not with the rape victim. And in many cases, and I think in, maybe in both of those cases, the director knows that and is using that tendency as a means of horrifying the audience once the story inverts and sort of indicting you for your own uh, base tendencies. But I think that if you're not Wes Craven, you're not necessarily going to be a master of using that story element. And indeed, even Wes Craven is not always a master of using that story element. And there's also just the question of, you know, using rape as something that increases the stakes emotional or jeopardy wise in what is otherwise a light escapist entertainment is something that feels like a, a big hammer that doesn't need to be there, especially since, uh, you know, there are a bunch of people in the audience who are going to be reliving their own all too frequent horrible brushes with the threat of rape or the worry of rape or, in fact, uh, the actual experience of it. And so it's something that you uh, need to be careful of and something that I, you know, that that's so heavy that, you know, like the Holocaust, you don't want to invoke it lightly. You, if you do invoke it, it has to be the whole point of what it is that you're doing, and you have to deal with it in a uh, responsible way. The, the trouble also with, I think, a lot of heroines is because they are created as crush objects for guys, is that, you know, Laura Croft, when you look at her, you know, she's basically Jessica Rabbit, wearing uh, explorer's gear so that even the act of having... Or as it turned out, she's Angelina right. Jolie. <laughs> even, you know, just having male characters attack her, even if there is no overt sign of sexualization there, that connotation remains uh, in the air because that figure is uh, so completely uh, uh, sexualized for, you know, essentially uh, cliche slash marketing reasons. Well, the same, that's the same thing that, for example, Joss Whedon did with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is he says... He wants, he wants to show the scene of the vampire eating the cheerleader or eating the, the blonde girl and then have it turn around and have the blonde girl chase the vampire, that that be the fundamental turnabout. But that turnabout depends on that first impulse to identify with the vampire and to see uh, the, the blonde victim as a, you know, as, an, as a prurient object, I guess, is, is the way to put it. And so without that initial tension, you don't get to play back on it. And with something like Buffy, that I think over the long haul proved that it was done well, although there's individual cases of the rape hammer being clumsily uh, used, or similar hammers being clumsily used, I think that overall the, the, the main Buffy storyline demonstrates that that was done intelligently. But it's very, very hard to say as a critical diktat, you know, only use this very dangerous, very clumsy, very overused thing if you're going to use it intelligently, because no creator in history says, well, I'm a stoop, so I won't use it, right? Right. I mean, ultimately, this boils down to the same issue where you are creating characters that represent a culture other than your own, which is that uh, it's okay if you do it well, <laughs> meaning don't make bad art. Right, yeah. Which is, in theory, the whole point of the process in the first place. But sadly, that stricture has not kept bad art from being made from the time of the Egyptians down to us. Right. And you just have to be, I guess, aware of the fact that uh, if you fail in certain instances where you're dealing with particular subject matter, you are not just creating something that's lame, but you're creating something that uh, reinforces a uh, prevailing negative force in, in culture. So uh, 
give extra thought to when you bring those elements in. Well, you know what? I think that sounded like a summary. I, I think <laughs> it did too. <laughs> On, On to the, the next hut. The black dog with the red saucer-like eyes glowering at us from the window. The strange electronic humming of an alien probe going on in the antechamber indicate that we once again entered the mysterious confines of the Elliptony Hut. And Ken, this week I thought we would talk a bit about the Flat Earth Society, which has not been on my radar very much. I always sort of assumed it was kind of a, a goof. But when I was uh, in uh, Newfoundland, I discovered that one of the five corners of the flat earth is in Newfoundland. And uh, one of my friends, actually Allison Fizzard, who we heard from uh, in a previous episode, uh, was visiting in the area near where one of these corners uh, sat and went to a cafe where they have applications to join the Flat Earth Society. It turns out they want you to be a very diligent believer in the flat earth. They don't want you to just join out of uh, mere jest or novelty, they require that you uh, write an essay demonstrating your sincerity to be allowed to join the Flat Earth Society of Canada. So now that they seem like something other than the Spaghetti Monster or the the Discordians seem to be a, a, a real belief system for somebody, I thought they were appropriate fodder for the Liptony Hut. So Ken, what do we need to know about the round earth denialists? Okay, um, there are several Flat Earth Societies. There was the one that was very straightforward, very, you know, had, had journals of zetetic astronomy and challenged people to, to debates, and, and, they, and they built a giant track that was full of water to demonstrate that there was no uh, curvature of the Earth, and they founded, uh, among other things, Zion, Illinois, uh, here near Chicago, so... I owe them that. If you believe in a flat Earth, go to go to uh, Zion, Illinois. Go right. to Chicago. Well, don't go to Chicago because you can go up to the tall building and, and see a heresy. But um, uh, <laughs> stay in Zion. And, and so the that uh, flat Earth society then sort of went away. And there was another flat Earth society that was founded as a successor to the Universal Zetetic Society, and that one was more just sort of your ordinary group of crazy people who believed, and, and not in the sort of 19th century, we're all science way, but in the 20th century, science is for lamers, man. We just know it's true. So when is all this starting up? What's our historical context? So Samuel Robotham is the guy who founds the Zetetic Society, and he founds it in 1849 by publishing a big pamphlet on the topic. And that becomes a big deal up until a flat earth movement sort of ends Right around World War One, people start, you know, saying we don't have time because it's a very fundamentally Victorian sort of a thing to do to have, you know, your amateur scientific body with, in this case, particularly ridiculous positions. And so they uh, they sort of fade out in 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 right around World War One. Then there's a guy named Samuel Shenton who refounds the Flatter Society in 1956, and he runs it. Of course, it starts it up the year before Sputnik is launched, which might not have been the ideal time to do that. There's always time for a rear guard action. <laughs> There's always time for a rear, rear guard action. And so this gets sort of taken over by creationists, I guess, or by biblical literalists, 
it's always got a biblical you know stream to it because the Bible talks about the corners of the world and such and such. But so, so that's the emotional impulse behind yeah, it, right? Uh, there's, there's, a, there, and the emotional impulse is, you know, we liked the world when it was flat. By gosh, um, and and that society sort of ran until about, you know, the, you know, the seventies really are bad for it uh, because there's just so much space activity and it's so hard to stay, uh, you know, believing that not just the moon landings are fake, but Skylab is fake. Every shuttle mission is fake. It just, it, it, it sort of collapses under its own weight. Now, the Flat Earth Society of Canada, according to the Internet, and why would the Internet lie to me, uh, was founded by a philosopher named Leo Ferrari, who was doing it as an exercise in the creation of willful disbelief. And they ran that, and I think this may be what the current... So it's all a trick to get people to write philosophy essays. Exactly. And what these guys are doing then is sort of creating this as sort of a quasi, I guess, maybe a situationist thought experiment, only they're boring, not like the situationist. But the, uh, <laughs> but then the... Yes, see also essay writing. But the current uh, Flat Earth Society that had, they, they had a website that went away for a while. It was like Flat Earth Org or something like that. It went to the flat internet. It went with the flat internet where the, the, the cables all run forever. That one, I th when you look at the fact on Flat Earth Org, it is very obviously a Discordian prank, that it has been sort of eaten by the Discordians. And so I think that there may be there at the, at the corners at the, at the, at the, you know, up in Canada where seriousness continues, they may still have the <laughs> philosophical grounding, but the internet flat earth society of now is pretty much a Discordian goof. And they talk about, you know, the, the middle angle of the Pentagon. And someone says, does that mean that six equals five? Yes. And that's in their facts. So obviously it, it's a goof. And so the corners the, of the pentagonal corners of the earth, as established by these guys, I think are either the inventions of the philosophers who were literally trying to make it as ridiculous as they possibly could, or the Discordians who are definitely trying to make it as ridiculous as they possibly could. Well, we know that e even though uh, I think we can both agree, go out on a limb and say that the Earth is round, yeah. presumably there's got to be some mystic significance to the places that they've selected as the five corners of the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, you might forgive my naivete. When I imagine a flat earth, I imagine it having four corners. I guess I'm just thinking of a rectangle, but it has mm -hmm. five. So those are Lake Mikhail in Tunguska, uh, the aforementioned Brimstone Head, uh, Newfoundland, Easter Island. The next ones, uh, they're in a bit more dispute. That might be Hokkaido, Lasso, or uh, Lassa Tibet, or Outer Mongolia as corner number four. And the fifth corner is either Tasmania or Ponape. So, Ken, what is the real mystical significance of this truth that the flat earthers have mistakenly wandered into? The, once you start having sites sort of pinpointed around the world and give them significance and say that they're the corners of the earth, the corners of the earth have got to be some place where there is a you know greater or lesser amount of telluric force or ley line power or whatever, you know, geomantic energy you are tracking with your insanity or your magic or your psionic powers. And Tunguska is, is a straight giveaway. Easter Island is a straight giveaway. Um, I think that the being unable to pick from the uh, embarrassment of riches in Central Asia is interesting. 
And you, they pick Tasmania because at some point the guy who's imagining this pentagram in his head or pentagon in his head is saying, none of these are actually near the edge of the world at all. This is looking <laughs> stupid. We should pick Tasmania. And he's like, oh, Tasmania is boring. Let's pick Panape. It's awesome. It's got uh, Cyclopean ruins on it. And so there is a degree of magnetic impulse that these sites attract, if not in the real world, on the minds of people who are making things up. And that is people who are either making things up, you know, self-consciously, or people who are making things up unconsciously are being drawn to these sites as as magnetic posts. Now, I've just found a logical error yeah. in the flat earth theory. So, uh, when you go to these places and you don't see any corner and don't walk off the edge of the world, uh, how do the flat earthers explain this? Is the world really a big flat tesseract where you are teleported back into the other area, therefore making it seem round? Well, the original fact that I read for these guys was that the the edge of the Earth is not the corners of the Earth. The edge of the Earth is Antarctica, and that in the edge of Antarctica, or the middle of Antarctica, I guess you call it, there is a big ridge of mountains, and that around those mountains is the end of the world, and that no one has ever gone to those mountains and peeked over without being part of the big uh, conspiracy. And And so the corners have some sort of weird metaphysical sense to them that is not necessarily, I think, a... So this is the esoteric layer on top of a putative scientific heresy. Right, yeah. The, <laughs> the <laughs> And again, you know, tell, telling a joke so often that you believe it seems to be coming into play over and over and over with this nonsense. So the notion of the corners, even in the original fact, to call it metaphysical is perhaps overstating the case, but to to call it the theoretical pillar, I don't, theoretical is too strong. There's a, there, the eleptonic pillar, I'm going to use my word, the eleptonic pillar of, of the world here that is in some way significant to the geometry of, of, of the universe is, I guess, what they're getting at. But again, I think a lot of it is just someone being clever on the internet and then it's sort of stuck to them like, you know, like glue, which I guess is a lesson to everyone, and Lord knows it's happened to me. I'm reminded when I look at, the, at any list like that of good old Ivan Sanderson, the great uh, cryptozoologist and elliptonist, who uh, discovered that there are vile vortices, what he called, around the world, in which the Bermuda Triangle is only one of them, and that there is one of them off of Japan, and one of them off of Hawaii, and one of them over Easter Island, and one of them uh, in basically where Skull Island was in the South Indian Ocean, one on Madagascar for your Lemurians, one actually in Nepal, uh, one in the Sahara Desert. And so that these he placed at irregular intervals because he felt that the Earth was like a giant ball of quartz, and it had sort of points at which the resonant frequency of the quartz was a thing, manifest, I guess, and uh, where the, the harmonic points, the facets of, of, the, of the magical quartz inside the Earth uh, stuck out to the crust, and that these are why planes disappear and, and, and Bigfoots exist and, and stuff like that. And then people who are, you know, excited about that took Sanderson's 10 vile vortices and made it, I think, like 48 vile vortices all over the place and managed on the planetary grid system to map every crazy thing, or at least as near as damn it, that they could get to. And so uh, if you're playing Feng Shui, of course, uh, the whole object of that is to control places of power on the Earth for their valuable qi energy. And so you could set up a campaign where the five corners of the Earth or X number of these wild vortices 
are sort of a package deal where if you manage to attune to all of them, you get extra powers so that you want to make sure that the bad guys don't complete their attunement to the final fifth of the five corners. And uh, that can also give you an excuse if you're using the wild vortices theory to have Bigfoots and UFO aliens to show up to fight right. at various uh, particular feng shui sites. Dinosaurs and, and all manner of stuff can, can show up. I do want to mention that on the Vile Vortices site that I uh, found, the Canadian pole, uh, the Canadian vortices include Buffalo Lake in uh, Alberta and the uh, North Magnetic Pole in Canada at Ugansk Bay, which is apparently near a meteor crater of some kind. So there's still Canada is still there even in vortex theory. It's not all subtropics the way that uh, that Ivan Sanderson would have you believe. Uh, well, that's uh, that's good to hear. And uh, maybe uh, now that we've reached the end of the podcast, I'll go looking to see if there's a vortex near Kensington Market. That would be one where all manner of strange foods from around the world mysteriously appear. So, uh, I think that's exactly it. I, I just have to make sure to avoid the dangerous donut vortex on College Street. Well, it's not so much a dangerous vortex as a beautiful vortex. <laughs> Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. The Dreamlands. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help us overcome our heroic suffering by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Join such illustrious sponsors as Mark Watson, John Wilson, and Andrew Cowie. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or geographic heresy by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>